Welcome to a new episode of Technoculture. I'm Federica Bressan, and today I'm here with Toshi Anders Hu, director of the Emerging Media Lab at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California. Thank you for being on Technoculture. Happy to be here. So the Institute for the Future is a nonprofit think tank established in 1968 with the aim of studying emerging media trends to make hypotheses about possible futures, but also to inform a discussion of issues that society needs to face today. Could you qualify the focus that your specific lab has also in the frame of uh, the Institute? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, so at Institute for the Future, we have a number of different labs, um, everything from the future of health to the future of food, future of governance. Um, and uh, my lab is called the Emerging Media Lab, as you mentioned. And our focus is really around human connection, collaboration, and communication uh, through mediated technologies or mediated experiences. Um, and, you know, in some ways, it's a little bit redundant in the sense that IFTF, as you mentioned, was founded in 1968. And our founders, uh, several of our founders were uh, part of the RAND Corporation, another think tank in here in the United States. And uh, they were engineers and scientists working on the first uh, kind of the predecessor to the Internet, the ARPANET. And... Uh, they were very interested, you know, initially, you know, the, the Internet or the ARPANET was created to create resiliency around communication networks, primarily for, for military purposes, right? And the, kind of as a result of, like, how would we deal with a nuclear war? How would, could we maintain communication systems throughout that? So the idea of a distributed communications network was kind of the foundational concept there. And uh, so several of our founders were working on some of the foundational technologies for that, like packet switching, which is the basically the idea of just wrapping data in a like a universal packet that allows it's kind of like a shipping container, allows you to just move through uh, seamlessly and, and and frictionlessly frictionlessly through all sorts of you know, standardized networks. But this was for data. And arguably those two things, uh, packet switching and shipping containers, have kind of globalized the world today, right? It allows us to transmit information and things around the world in ways that were very difficult before. Um, but these folks who were working on the early ARPANET, they uh, realized, oh, well, you know, maybe this Internet thing might be useful for things beyond just military and academic use cases, right? At the time, there was like maybe six nodes on the entire Internet. <laughs> Um, and so they spun off the Institute for the Future uh, to, to look at what were going to be the larger societal impacts of this new communication information networks that they were developing. How is this going to affect education? How is this going to affect domestic life, social life, um, all these different areas outside of just military and academic so I bring that history, just wanted to provide some context, but also to say, even though my lab was started when I was recruited to join IFTF in 2016, it's very much part of the legacy of not only the Institute, but all of the labs are kind of looking at, you know, even like the health lab is looking at, well, how does information technology, how does kind of ubiquitous computing, how do these uh, new, all these technologies impact um, specifically, uh, you know, health in that case. I'm looking more broadly and, you know, the lab, even though IFTF's focus is around long-term futures, we're typically looking at a 10-year, sometimes 20-year horizon. Um, the Emerging Media Lab is tracking, and IFTF does this in general, we, we are tracking, we're database, so we're looking at emergent, what we call signals, of signals of change that are happening. And these are 
small kind of stories or occurrences, maybe a new technology, maybe a new law, maybe a new social behavior that um, may not appear on a radar, may not be established enough to kind of qualify as a trend. Um, but um, we, through our methodologies, which we can talk about more, we develop these into what we call forecasts. And, uh, you know, uh, actually, when IFTF was first started, the idea was that using kind of these emerging computational systems, we were going to be able to predict the future. And we spent, I think, about 15 years as an organization trying to do that until at one point we wrote a uh, kind of seminal paper for us where we said, well, looks actually no one can predict the future. Um, and since then, we've been less about you know predicting the future and more around how can you think more creatively, more strategically, and more provocatively about the future. Partially because number one, there is no f one future out there, right? There's many possible futures, so it's really a possibility space. And uh, also because um, you know it's less about predicting the future. Of course, everyone wants to be able to predict the future, but once you understand that you can't, then the most important thing is how do you then respond to all these different possibilities? And how do you understand in this kind of day and age in which we see kind of rapid change and transformation economically, environmentally, politically, where more and more change is happening, um, how do organizations, institutions, individuals, communities build up their resiliency. And part of our philosophy around that is that we need to help human beings and the organizations that they're in think, again, more creatively and strategically about the future. And it turns out, if you look at the neuroscience, humans are pretty bad at thinking about the future. Um, and this is a problem. So that's why you have to create kind of frameworks and methodologies and practices uh, in order to, to, to do that. And that's really kind of the fundamental core of the work that IFTF does. A lot of the work I do in the Emerging Media Lab is looking at emergent signals um, and, uh, and not just kind of looking at them on the online and reading about them, but we bring in a lot of the emerging new media technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, um, you know, uh, new types of sensors, and we try to get hands-in, hands-on experiences. Because for IFTF, that's been around for this long, um, you know, a lot of these technologies, you know, from the kind of inception of the in of the institute, we're thinking about, okay, someday the internet will be a place where we're going to be, you know, have millions of people commuting or or learning or shopping or voting even. Um, now that's here. <laughs> and for some of the technologies that our lab has been focusing on over the last two years or three years, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, again, have, these have been far off horizons, right? And augment, uh, artificial intelligence is another one of those. It's been kind of things that you might see in a lab or read a paper about or what might, you know, see, see plenty of science fiction movies around. And now a lot of these things that were once science fiction are suddenly becoming practical realities. And people are needing ways to understand that, how to parse it, to do sense making. Um, they need to figure out how to engage as an organization, as an individual. And then what I think what we're, what many of us are recognizing, kind of the whole world is recognizing, is we're at this kind of interesting time in history in which, in some ways, we're kind of receiving these superpowers, right? The ability to kind of see anything anywhere in the world, to go anywhere through virtual reality, to control life itself through biotechnology. And at this moment where we're kind of being given these powers of almost like godlike powers, we're also kind of simultaneously feeling like we're on the verge of collapse, right? And why is that? 
And I think uh, this is a question that uh, we looked very deeply into in our, uh, we have an annual 10-year forecast event. This is our big annual research gathering. And every year there is a theme. And that last year, the theme was exactly that. Like, how is it that we're kind of in, in, inheriting or d- developing these superpowers while simultaneously feeling this sense of collapse? So we uh, part of my work is not just looking at technology, but also looking at the kind of mythology of media, right? So if you think of stories, and mythology is the way that humans have made sense of the world. It's the way we map the world. It's the way we model the world. It's the way we understand ourselves in the world. It's the way we understand our relationship to other people. It's the way we understand relationship to the world. It's the way we understand our relationship to mysterious things. These are all the functions of myth that like Joseph Campbell would talk about. Um, that right now we're at this time where we have to kind of draw upon, there's a lot of mythologies around powers being given to humans and our kind of bumbling ways and some of the, many of the unintended consequences that, that bubble up. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that our, our lab, at one level, we're looking at emerging technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality. We're doing prototyping, we're doing research, we're doing design experiences, we're working with artists to explore what the potential is there. We're talking to social scientists and um, a wide range of people to try and understand what are the kind of short-term impacts and what are the opportunities. But we're also really looking at, okay, what are the ethics? What are the kind of longer-term impacts of this? And how is this transforming us, right? And one of the things my, my career has been looking at emerging media for many years, and there's a pattern that's well-known when you look at emerging media formats is that there's always a period when a new media technology uh, comes out that you just imitate what you've done before. So the classic example is, uh, you know, when radio came out, the first thing they did is radio plays, right? And part part of that is you have the script already, you have actors who know how to do that, you have audiences who understand what a play is. All these things are kind of there, and, and it helps you kind of figure out how to use this new technology without kind of reinventing what the content is and not really fully leveraging the new affordances. What it gets really interesting is when you kind of get that basic literacy and kind of technical proficiency and you're able to do something you couldn't do before. So what we're really interested in and what I've been interested in my entire career working with emerging media is, you know, media is very, you know, literally like dazzling, right? So there's a new, new media has, is, is, it has a novelty quality to it. So it's hard to not be entranced by like, oh, I'm putting on this virtual reality headset. I'm in another world. So my kind of passion and practice has always been how do we look beyond the novelty factor, study these new media technologies, understand what are the new interactions, what are the new affordances, what are the things we could do with these media formats, what, what is the new paradigm that's different than previous. And then, as I mentioned, if you believe that kind of storytelling is how we understand the world and how we map the world, and uh, that metaphors are kind of the building blocks for stories, the question really that pours through all the work that I do and have done before even I was at IFTF is, what are the new stories that we can tell and what are the new conversations we can have that we couldn't have before? And so that's what I'm very interested in. So, you know, just to give some examples of that with virtual reality, this is not just a experiential media, so we're, but you're, you're, you, you feel a sense of presence there. So what is your relationship rather than kind of being the outside observer to something, a framed movie or, you know, an abstract bit of text, you're like, you perceive you're there. So you have all of these other faculties, not just your kind of abstract cognitive mind, symbolic mind, 
you have your embodied cognition. What is it? Your body. We, we've learned uh, we, we don't just think with our minds. We think with our bodies. We think socially. We think with our environments. So these are the kinds of things that we're really interested in is what does it mean when you're able to have a sense of presence in these worlds? And what does it mean when you're able to actually, you know, right now most VR experiences are solo isolated experience. What does it mean when it starts being a collaborative, communicative, connective space? Um, and then kind of on the other side of that, when you talk about like how are these realities coming to being and who owns these or who creates those futures, um, that's a really good question. I mean, we're very much about like what we would call distributed futures. William Gibson, the science fiction writer, has a famous quote that says, um, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so kind of my unofficial motto from for IFTF is just like futures distributed. So how you know we, we we look at the big companies what they're doing, but what are kind of small artists in Kenya doing, you know, or um, what are all the different kind of futures that are being created, and what are all the facets of that? And one of the challenges that we have right now is all these different technologies I mentioned, like virtual reality, augmented reality, AI. They're in a very interesting inflection point right now because they're they're transitioning from being kind of in labs and an experimentation space to being widely commercially distributed. So people have been working in AI for decades. VR has been around for decades. What's different right now is it's becoming commercialized. And so many people will say technology is a tool, so it's kind of neutral and it does it depends on what you do with it. I would say that's true when you're in a small scale experimental environment where, yeah, an artist or a researcher could kind of do anything with it. It could be good or bad. When you add into that like market-driven forces, or in the case of China with like AI, like political forces, you know, the technology takes on the power structure and the values of those kind of scaling forces. So when you look at where we are now, we're kind of not in that utopia that many, actually many of the thinkers here in Silicon Valley and even at IFTF were kind of imagining, where, which are very possible futures and, and are very true in many ways of like, that we're kind of, that networked kind of consciousness and communication was going to lead to like human evolution and, and a new kind of uh, d d democratization of, and, and liberation. While at the same time, we're also living in a surveillance society and even I would call it a surveillance economy now. So there's lots of really interesting things popping up, but we're really interested in kind of exploring the possibility spaces and really what are the impacts across lots of different sectors and lots of inter different uh, facets for, for humans. That was a long answer. <laughs> Something that seems to emerge pretty clearly is that we talk a lot about technology and we like it, we like to play with it and experiment, but ultimately it's never about the technology. So it's about new social behaviors or how it changes the game for for us, how do you balance in your daily activity and planning your research these two components? Because you also develop technology here. That takes a lot of resources that can get very exciting. So how do you also balance and keep a focus on the social aspect, the human aspect? It's a really good question. Um, I think we're, we're kind of in the middle of or hopefully at the end of a phase of technological boom in which, um, you know, we've seen kind of the this digital age over the last maybe two decades or so, um, this information age blowing up. And a lot of it has been around like, well, what can we do and what is possible? And it's been a very exciting period for technologists, developers, business people now, because like suddenly things like with digital technology, one of the affordances of it is it just scales wildly in ways that physical objects and systems don't, right? 
what we're finding, though, is that maybe there's, uh, you know, this kind of move fast, break things has some very serious consequences or even the ethos of like disrupt. Right. Or even the ethos of innovate. Right. There's that's been, I, you know, throughout I've had a career, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, like maybe 10 years ago, even innovation arms of companies were kind of kind of considered like a side project of, you know, especially if it was a more traditional company. And what I've seen and what we've all seen over the last, let's say, 10 years is this gradual shift to where companies, even traditional companies, are expected to innovate or die, right? So now innovation has gone from being kind of this side practice that maybe puts out some cool PR things that you're doing of wild concept cars or whatnot to like, okay, if I don't show that I'm innovating every quarter, I'm going to get pummeled in the stock market, right? This is kind of like, or I'm going to get disrupted by like, you know, uh, 10, you know, 20 year olds and in, in, in a basement somewhere just clicking on some keyboards. So we're at this period where I think we're hopefully getting more conscious and we're starting to ask questions like, well, should we be creating this? And yes, we can create this now and today and we're moving fast, but what, what are the, what are we, what are the drawn out consequences of this? What are the possible unintended consequences of this? And that's a a lot of what our practice is um, in in terms of our foresight methodologies. You know, we say, as I mentioned earlier, we do forecasting here, right? We create forecasts. So what's our definition of a forecast, right? Because forecasts can take many different shapes and and form factors and even scopes. My favorite definition is one I didn't come up with it, but is kind of shared throughout the Institute is, a forecast is a provocative but plausible statement about the future that helps us make decisions today. And so let's unpack that for a moment, right? So provocative and plausible, right? So you can make a statement about the future. I could say, like, you know, robots are going to, you know, um, start self-replicating and um, create a new race and, uh, you know, transform the entire surface of the earth into robotic you know territory or whatnot that's somewhat provocative today but if it's something you've heard before it's not going to spur you to think about the future and remember what i said before earlier it's the foresight practice at least the way we we practice it isn't about me giving you a mentality or set of methodologies to know what's going to happen it's more about how do we, as I said before, we're bad at thinking about the future. So how can it help us think outside of our current mental picture of the way things are and what we think the way things are going to be, right? And so you want to have something, you want to have a forecast that's provocative, right? It should be, make you think about new things. But we also believe it should be plausible. Like if I just said, like, in the future, you know, um, I don't know orange trees are going to grow to a million miles large and, and crush the earth. Like, yeah, okay, that's somewhat provocative. But it's not plausible in any way. So how do you create a, what we call a chain of plausibility? And that's where, when I mentioned signals come in. So how do you look at kind of small emergent trends? They may not actually succeed, but what could they suggest? And how can you create these chains of possibility? So one of the tools we use, we have a whole toolkit that we, that we not only use, but we also teach here. Um, is uh, something called sometimes referred to as a futures wheel. This is kind of common in the foresight world, um, but we uh, call we we call our exercise or the or the tool drawing out consequences. So you take a signal like something like you know uh, today. Let's say like researchers have found a way to pull power electricity from 
thin air using these carbon nanotubes and these compounds. So you'd look at something like that that might have somebody. So how do you draw like first, second, and third order consequences uh, so that you can begin to see like what's the chain of plausibility of, of and, and to get to a more provocative statement. Um, so. Part of what we do is like, you know, you want to look at kind of negative and positive consequences. You want to look at the complexity. Part of why you're doing this is also to say like, what are our kind of our agency points in this? And our clients tend to be, for the most part, I mean, we, we, we're, a public, we're a nonprofit, so we do a lot of public-facing work, but our, our clients, our members, are, tend to be large companies and government agencies. So they actually have pretty big levers around the products they decide to make, the policies they decide to put out. Um, and that's a lot of the, what we're trying to get them to ask is like, okay, what are, you know, they, uh, there's some, Alvin Toffler, the famous futurist, said like, there's kind of three types of futures. There's probable futures, there's uh, preferable futures, and there's plausible futures. So for plausible futures, you need artists to think of like what's, 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 like what's, what's possible, like all the possibilities, right? You gotta be creative mind. For probable futures, you need statisticians and mathematicians. For preferable futures, you need politicians because you need to think about okay, like here's all the possibilities, here's what might happen, but what do we want as a people, as a humanity? So we try to help organizations kind of integrate these foresight practices in to help them have better conversations with their stakeholders, whether if they're a government or a corporation. We've developed more recently um, a what's called Ethical OS Toolkit. It's a toolkit that's available online at ethicalos.org. And it's basically um, a set of tools to kind of do an audit on any business or project or initiative you might do to think about like what might be the longer term implications? How could this kind of either maybe be built on kind of a faulty premise of things that might lead to bad, a bad place or how could this be exploited by bad actors? And by no means is that kind of an end all be all tool. But it's the beginning of one of many efforts by us and other organizations who are trying to think about, okay, technology isn't just going to evolve into a, a, a good place. Uh, we have to actually curate this and we have to, you know, humans need constraints and rules and, you know, we also need freedom. One last question. Who makes the future? We, as a general public, I would argue, receive the new technology quite well, passively, we receive it. That's the thing. The new iPhone appears on the market and we go buy it. The iPod at some point was on the market and we bought it. Nobody really asked for it before. So we receive these things, but they change how we live. We use them in everyday life. So the people who make the technology impact our life. Can you estimate the impact that the technology you make yourself, I don't want to focus on the technology made here, but the, the makers of technology and also then the forces on the market, how much of that actually produces a future for us? It determines it. That was a very long question. Did, did yeah, it make sense? It does. There's about seven questions in that. Um, right. So let me see if I can answer this. I mean, at a very high level, I just, I, I just returned from Dubai, one of the most futures forward countries in the world, and they're opening up the uh, the Museum of the Future there. It's a beautiful, unusual building. What an oxymoron, the Museum of the Future, right? 
why why not right why can't why can't we think about it right the museum doesn't have to just be things from the past right um, it can be uh, yeah they're reimagining what even a museum is but what's really interesting um, is that it's a beautiful building you should look it up online it's like kind of curved and it's unusual very unusual shape and it's covered with Arabic text and it's a collection of poems but essentially like the 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 core concept there is uh, a quote that that's from the the leader of of, uh, of Dubai that says the future belongs to those who can imagine it um, and create it and that's a loaded statement right and I remember I said it earlier like Alvin Toffler one of the people who kind of invented so some of the, the the practice of futurism and, and and the idea of future shock was his famous book you know kind of talking about what you're talking about is like future shock is like culture shock but you can never go home right because you're always traveling forward right you can never go back he what he was saying when he says you know probable plausible and uh, preferable is that there is a huge political component to this right so uh, when you look at even something for example the internet itself right like today we kind of think of the internet as like you know AT&T or T-Mobile who are in the United States who provides your network services and these kind of big you know corporations and whatnot well, of course you know, we the people in the United States like paid for that. The taxpayers paid for that. And if you look to the history of a lot of this technology, that's kind of where it originally started. Um, and there used to be a lot more balance between kind of a sense of public good and like kind of private good. Um, and we've kind of lost that in the United States. If you look at kind of the history of even just something like television, right? Like the big companies that in, you know first got access to the public airwaves in the United States, they had to agree to basically do a, provide a public service. Um, we've lost that, uh, certainly in the United States. Um, and there's a kind of you know there's a particularly over the last you know maybe decade or so when we've kind of seen this flood of consumer cheap consumer technologies um, that I think for a while was like really fascinated us. I bet a lot of us were like pretty amazed to, I remember I got my first iPhone. I was like, wow, I don't have to be at my computer and I can just do email anywhere. And now today I'm like, oh my God, I've got my email with me every day. It just follows me everywhere I go. So I think part of it is we're exiting a one phase of kind of fascination and novelty and recognizing what the true impact. For example, one of the things I talk about is everyone talks about how we live in a connected society. I think if you hear someone talking about how connected we are, I would say, think about, I in my mind say, replace the word connected with interrupted. Are we that much more connected? I have the potential to connect with anybody at any moment, pretty much anywhere in the world. But am I, am I connecting from a deep place? Am I able to be myself, or am I just kind of is my brain everywhere? What we what they find is what, and there's a lot of research on this is that we're mostly interrupted right now. We're actually not connected. So you know, human humanity. Uh, you know, like, just to go back to kind of the mythological roots, like there's many stories about kind of like you know the. Um, the hubris of, of youth and I and 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 uh, being a juvenile and kind of being given a new power right and I think that humanity is kind of there like we're being given this incredible power to communicate and see anything anywhere and uh, we're not we haven't we haven't quite figured out what the implications of that are some of us have and are leveraging that and to very in very powerful ways if you look at the way China's government is like putting out their plan for AI like you know that's a who, who owns that? That in that in that society is very clear. Like you know, 
the Chinese government, the Communist Party is like in control of everything and they're going to own that future and they're playing that out. Um, in America, we're kind of living, you know, uh, like we have a market economy essentially and uh, we're, we're seeing kind of the good and bad of that. So it's a, you know, it's a, that, that we could have a day-long, con- week-long conference and discussing that. Um, but I would say kind of in short, I think at, at our best and our kind of our goals here at IFTF is to empower the world to think more creatively, strategically about the future. And that means everyone. We think the world is going to be a better place if everyone is able to think more creatively and strategically about the future. And we're able to do that collaboratively. Well, every generation and every society in a different way always thinks they're the pinnacle of human evolution, right? Do you think that, you know, it will keep accelerating, that in 20 years we will look back and think how behind we were, or we are now living some sort of peak moment of technological advancement? I often think about that. I kind of think that we are just at the verge at the beginning of a whole new era. What what do you think? The best is yet to come? Well, that's undetermined, right? Whether or not it's best. Uh, But, you know, I think clearly we're not at the end of the line for what we can do creatively with technology. And I'm not just talking about digital technology. I'm talking about transforming our world and the tools that we make and use. I think what we're hitting right now, which may trigger a new direction in a lot of this technological development, is we're reaching our planetary limits, right? Is, you know, we can't, the world is not an endless waste paper basket and it's not an endless resource and we're we're you know collectively as a as a many of us as a species are recognizing we're hitting those planetary limits and um that you know kind of this idea of of kind of uh, the capitalist ideal of like ex, uh, eternal growth right life systems don't work that way planet is a living system. Humans are part of that living system. Companies are part of that living system, but we're not operating within the the principles of living systems. And a lot of kind of, some of the technology, well, actually a lot of the technology, particularly consumer technology or consumer technology to create consumer goods has created like an unsustainable, uncontinuable situation for humanity. Who could foresee that one? Yeah. Well, a lot of people (laughs) did. And the plausible future, not the most preferable, probably not the most preferable. Yeah. So I think we're having to redefine what what those uh, futures are going to be. I think the idea of like, oh, you know, this kind of fascination, just kind of like when a teenager might get their car for the first time, just feel like I'm unstoppable. I can do anything like. Yeah, but you actually, what are, not only what are the limits of the world, but what are your responsibilities to the world, yourself, your community? And I think that's what those are the bigger questions right now that are going to drive the bigger societal shifts, the political shifts, the policy shifts. You know, we have all this potential to literally change life itself, to, 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 to uh, you know, build all these self-replicating technologies, to, um, you know, go literally to Mars, all these things. But what are we trying to do as a humanity and how are those reflecting the kinds of values that we need to survive on this planet? And a lot of our focus at IFTF right now, I mean, William Gibson, who I quoted earlier, also recently came out and said, anybody who's doing, you know, basically futures work that and do, creating forecasts that don't integrate climate change are going to look back at those and, and realize that these were kind of worthless because this is part of the context that we're in right now. And this is at a global planetary existential scale that we're not going to tweet our way out of, right? 
So these are very complicated questions. I think we're at this beginning of this kind of inflection point where where many of us are starting to realize like, oh, you know, like for Facebook, for example, like, oh, great, I'm connected with the whole world. But what does that really mean? Who, again, you ask, who owns this future? Um, You know, who, you know, oh, we got all this free stuff, you know, I think we're at the end of like, you know, some some people phrase like we've been at we're at the end of a phase of kind of um, getting people, everyone connected, getting everyone to adopt digital communication technologies, and a lot of that has been done through you know, what they call in retail lost leaders, like free stuff. We've gotten so much free stuff, and just like why wouldn't we all want free stuff, right? And now we're realizing well what the price is and and what kind of the the consequences might be for that, and it's going to be challenging because we've got these big behemoths that have kind of built massive uh, kind of market driven forces that are global forces now. You know, even if you break up a company like Facebook, like does that really solve our problems and whatnot? So I'm not trying to vilify anyone. I'm just saying human humanity is at a, is at a very complicated point, and I think we're going to have to do some serious maturing. Uh, and we're and many of us are trying to figure out what that looks like. Thank you very much for being on Technoculture. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Technoculture. Check out more episodes at technoculture-podcast.com or visit our Facebook page at Technoculture Podcast and our Twitter account, hashtag Technoculture Podcast. <laughs>